All right, go ahead, grab a seat if you haven't already. I am, I gotta say, guys, I'm impressed. I did not expect this many people to turn out. Seeing who the diehards are, <laughs> brave the snow. Sometimes people get weird about first snow. They forget that the car works in the snow and it can be moved. And so it's good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. Um, shout out, uh, where is he? Todd Bumgarner, Two Pillars in the house. If you don't know, Two Pillars is a great church in town, and Todd is a stud. And they've been, they're ahead of us by how far? About a year? Kind of planted ahead of us about a year before us. And Todd has been such a huge source of encouragement uh, to me and just a, just a supporter and champion of this church. And so hugely thankful to him and, and love Two Pillars Church. They're doing some great stuff. It's a great church. So if I ever, like, just, you know, offend you beyond belief and you need to go somewhere else where somebody is less crass, Two Pillars Church is a good place to be. Um, you made it in the snow. As you know, if you're a part of this community, I love this time of year. Um, the Minnesotan in me even loves the snow. And we've been unpacking boxes and getting out all the Christmas stuff. Um, and one of the things that comes out about this time of year that our kids love is they have a, this toy nativity scene. And it's seriously one of their favorite toys. And I love listening to our girls play, and they create their own stories, their own Christmas stories uh, with the characters. Um, and the other day I was listening to them... <laughs> And, uh, and I hear Paige shouting at her sister from the other room, and she goes, Paige, put baby Jesus down. We do not need baby Jesus. And like the inner pastor in me, like felt like I needed to intervene, you know, and say, no, 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 hold on. We need Jesus. Ken and Barbie need Jesus. Jake and the Neverland Pirates, they all need Jesus. But I didn't. I resisted. <laughs> but I love listening to like, their little imaginations and the stories they create. And honestly, some of the stories that they create themselves, just with this hodgepodge of characters and the toys, is a lot more alive and a lot more vibrant um, than the nativity scene just seems to look and, and be on its own. And, and this is maybe just me, but I always have like kind of mixed feelings when it comes to the nativity scene specifically, um, partly because of everybody who's there that's not necessarily totally biblical. But part of it, too, is like it's such a serene like, scene. You know what I mean? And so, like, the Magi are all there, and they're just kind of seem happy to be there. And, and baby Jesus is always sleeping, because we all know newborn babies just sleep. And, like, the animals are kind of, like, just happy to be there, you know. And it kind of takes on this almost, like, plastic quality. And I, I think there's a danger for us in there, you know. And you don't need to take down your nativity scenes. I'm not anti-nativity scenes or anything like that. But it kind of takes on a plastic kind of fairy tale quality. You know, and it becomes a story that's hard to connect with. It's like, a, it's like a fairy tale. It's like once upon a time in a land far away. You know, and the characters themselves become kind of relics. You know, they become like these glossed over illustrations of what were really real people. And they're hard to relate with and they're hard to connect with. Right? And if there's any character that we've probably done this to more than others, uh, in this particular story, it's Mary. Right? And growing up, I never knew, really knew what to do with Mary. Uh, I grew up in a Protestant church, and, you know, Catholics seem to make, like, a big deal out of Mary. And maybe it was just, like, my inner skeptic. Um, but I kind of kept my distance. You know what I mean? And, and I, I felt like I couldn't relate with her. I mean, like, an angel has never visited me to date. Um, he has not, God has not recruited me for earth-shattering work that, you know, divides human history in two. Uh, God has never impregnated me or my wife to date. Right? And so it's hard to relate. And part of the reason I think she's hard to relate with in, in particular is the way that she's portrayed. And you see kind of a, an art piece up here, a depiction of Mary. And this is oftentimes how she's depicted, right? Um, she's very just kind of, I don't know, stoic. 
you know, and you can go to the next one. Right, she seems very pensive, very calm, especially given the circumstances. All right, and there's one more. All right, if you do a Google image search on Mary, the mother of Jesus, these are the kind of images you're going to find, right, overwhelmingly. And she seems very unhuman, you know, unfeeling, uh, unmoving. And I think there's a real danger there. We miss so much right, when we depict her in, in our paintings or in our songs, um, right? Uh, all is calm, all is bright, right? Rounding on virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender, so mild, sleep in heavenly peace, right? When this is our idea of, of peace, right? And we come to understand Mary as kind of this unfeeling, unmovable gal who felt little and suffered little. Uh, we miss some of the beauty of her story, and honestly, we miss some of the profound implications, especially when it comes to this, this idea of peace, and so I want to look at her this morning. And so we meet her in Luke chapter 1. And from the get-go, she's not presented to us as like this superhuman type character. But a very human character. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, for the Lord is with you. Right, and what is Mary's response? This is what it says in verse 29. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. All right? So this angel comes to her, and her response really is what we find to be often the human response throughout the scriptures is that she's freaked out. Uh, she's troubled. In fact, she's not just troubled. It says she's greatly troubled. Right, she's worried. And she wonders what she's in for. Right? Mary's not used to getting special attention. Right? Mary is, is a very ordinary gal. In fact, her name is very ordinary. And so if you've ever noticed in the scriptures when it talks about Mary, right, there's almost like a disclaimer, and they have to add to it to specify which Mary they're talking about. Right? So when they're talking about Mary, it's like, is this Mary Magdalene? Right? Is this Mary, the mother of Jesus? Is this Mary, Martha's sister Mary? Right? Is this John Mark's mom Mary? What Mary are we talking about? In fact, why don't you turn on the person next to you and just take a guess what percentage of women at this time were named Mary in Israel. Go ahead. What percentage do you think? Just turn on the person next to you. Just guess. You ready for this? All right, so Scott McKnight, one of my primary sources this morning, New Testament scholar, says that 50% of gals in Israel at this time are named Mary. 50%. So no more complaining about your name. All right, that's rough. It's rough. It makes things very confusing, like in the classroom, you know, or you're calling your kids home from dinner. 50% of gals. She's an ordinary gal. Not used to getting a lot of special attention. And she's troubled, it says. And honestly, her troubles are, are just beginning. Right? And the angel says, uh, you're going to become pregnant. And it's not going to be by Joseph. And it's not going to be by any other man. This is something that God is doing. And you're going to have a son. All right, now, you know, if you grew up in church, or even if you didn't, you probably know at least some of the end of the story. All right, so we know that Jesus grows up and he becomes a man and he goes to the cross and all these different things. But in this moment, all right, Mary, Mary doesn't know a whole lot. All right, but there's a few things that she does know. Uh, she knows she's not married. And she knows that she's going to have to go tell 
her fiance. All right now, just think about this. These are two real people. Think about this today, real life. She's going to have to go tell her fiance that she's pregnant and he knows that he's not the dad. And he's gonna have to tr- she's going to have to try to explain to him what happened. An angel visited me <laughs> um, and I'm pregnant. And what guy in his right mind is going to believe that, right? She also knows what happens to betrothed women who are unfaithful. And so she knows that her fate, if it is a common one, uh, is going to include being paraded to a public part of town. And they're going to let her hair down and strip her of her jewelry. And they're going to expose her body in shameful ways. And they're actually going to expose one of her breasts and make her stand there so that the other women in the village can come march by her and voice their disapproval. Right, she's going to be made a public disgrace, an object lesson for all the girls in town that this is what happens to girls like her. Right, she knew that saying yes to God probably meant losing her marriage and possibly her life. She knew that this would not only affect her, but this would affect the ones that she loved. She knew that Joseph's reputation as a righteous man would be called into question because of this. And as a good Jew... She knew that legally he was required to divorce her. And so either he would do the legal thing, divorce, divorce her and she'd be alone, or if he stayed with her, right, he would pay with his own reputation as a righteous man. <clears throat> she also knew that she lived in a small town. And people would talk. She knew that her son would be, he'd be taunted, he'd be marginalized, that he would be called an illegitimate child, And as such, he would be prohibited from some of the special assemblies that happened in town. Um, She knew what happens in a small town. Anybody else grow up in a small town like me? Do you remember what happened when somebody in town did something particularly scandalous? Do you remember how many people you heard it from? Right, people talk. Right, and this is a small town, 400 people. And she knew that everybody, everybody would know. She knew what happens to unwed teenage pregnant girls. And the very few people would, would believe her. She knew that her rep- reputation was as good as gone, and now this is how she'd be known. Right? And scholars have noted, like, just from the evidence that we have in the scriptures, that very few people actually believed her. Very few. And the talk continued. And this affected her and her family. In fact, Jesus' first sermon, when he began his ministry, he, he preaches his first sermon in his hometown. Right? This is a big moment. Big moment for any guy. I remember my first sermon. I was terrified. Couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. I was so afraid I was going to say something accidentally heretical, screw up somebody's eternity, you know? Freaked out. But it's a big moment. It's a big moment for Jesus. Right? And we're told that it didn't go over well. All right? People did not applaud when Jesus' first sermon was done. In fact, this is the response that we're told in Mark chapter 6. This is how they responded. They said, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And it goes on to say that they took offense at him. Right? And it's very interesting because normally, in this day and age, you always identified a son with his father. Right? This is Jesus, the son of Joseph. Right? But they don't say that. They say, no, this is Jesus, the son of Mary. And we all know Mary. Right? We don't even know who the father is, but boy, we all know Mary. And what kind of woman... Uh, she is. Right? It's possible the exact same thing is happening in John 8. 
Verse 48, a group of Israelites say this to Jesus. They say, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Right, this is a time when your cultural heritage, your family line, purity, was very, very important. Right, and Samaritans were considered to be kind of half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-right, half-wrong. Right, this was a backhanded slap. Very likely, this was a backhanded slap, not just at Jesus, but at his mom. Because we all know what kind of woman she was. Right, and, and, you know, on a side note, it's, it's very amazing to me, just on a side note, Right, let's just assume for a moment that Jesus was who the scriptures say he was, which is God in the flesh, the divine with skin on. Let's just assume that for a, just a second. And to think that out of all the people, out of all the ways that God could come to the world, right, that he doesn't come through royalty and he doesn't come through wealth and he doesn't come through, through uh, prestige, right, but he comes through this poor peasant girl with a shady reputation. Right, what kind of God are we dealing with here? If this is true, what kind of God is this? Right, and Jesus, as he grows up and his ministry begins to unfold, we find that women with shady reputation, uh, reputations were drawn to this man. Right, and they would, they would bathe his feet with their tears. And how would he respond? Right, the Holy One, the Sinless One. Right, if anybody has a right to pass judgment and c- c- condemn, right, it's this guy, it's Jesus. How does he respond? Right, he welcomes them. Right, he embraces them. He fights for them. He protects them. And, and for some of you listening this morning, you can just end the sermon here. This is the, just maybe the one thing you've got to hear this morning. You just need to know that there is nothing that you could have done or you could do in the future that could push you beyond God's love. Right, this is Jesus we're talking about. There is nothing in your past. There is nothing in your present. There is nothing in your reputation. Right, there's nothing that you either did or allowed or that was done to you that pushes you beyond God's love because this is Jesus we're talking about. Right, and Jesus, the most notorious of sinners, were drawn to this man. They wanted to be with him because he wanted to be with them. Right, women with shady reputations would run to him and find embrace. And we can't help but wonder, but maybe, just maybe, as he loved these women with shady reputations, if he didn't think of his mom. Mary, because that's the kind of woman she was. You know, when the angel came to Mary, there's a lot that she didn't know. She didn't know exactly how this was going to play out. She didn't exactly know all of the nuances of the cost to her own life, but what she did know that is any hopes and dreams that she had of living a normal, quiet, respectable life in a small town were gone in an instant. She knew that this was going to be a hard, a hard road. And despite all of it, despite the unknowns, this is her response. Amazing response. It's an amazing woman. This is how she responds. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Bless you. <laughs> I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. All right, John Orberg, who's another primary source uh, this morning that I'm using, uh, he says this about these words. He says, you know, this was not a statement of passive resignation to circumstances that were out of her control. This was a heroic act of obedience and surrender. This is a sacrifice of her agenda, her dreams, her hopes, her plans, her life, all that she is. And every day she is on this mission, she is going to have to say this unbelievable prayer, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have spoken. Right? And that response is going to be the foundation for any amount of peace that she's going to experience in her lifetime. 
right? Whatever peace she would know would not come because her life is quiet or easy or painless or suffering-free or respectable because her life is not going to be any of those things. Or who am I? She says, I am the Lord's servant. What do I choose? May it be to me, according to your word, your, your will be done. It's amazing. Right, long before Jesus ever suffered for Mary, Mary suffered for Jesus. It's an amazing woman. Right, and though she doesn't know it yet, this, this is going to be a prayer that she's going to have to pray time and time again. Right, when Jesus was still really young, uh, Joseph and Mary take him to the temple to be consecrated. And this is something that was required uh, by the Torah. And they were good Jewish parents. And so they took him, and normally this would have been a time of like, great pride. Right? We do child dedications up here. Right? And if you ever watch, like, the parents are beaming. Grandparents are in the crowd. They're beaming. Right? It's a really cool moment. This is supposed to be a moment uh, where the parents were, were very proud. But for Joseph and Mary, it had to be, um, if nothing else, they, they had to experience mixed emotions. Because right? the law called for a sacrifice for them to bring a lamb. And that lamb would be sacrificed on behalf of the child, but they couldn't afford a lamb. So they brought two pigeons instead. And this was something that the law allowed for, but no parent was proud of this. As a parent, you want to give your your child the best. And Joseph and Mary can't afford to do that. All they can afford are two pigeons. And New Testament scholar Catherine Clark Kroger points out that the irony of this moment Right, the irony that the mother of the future king was offering a poor person's sacrifice would have been palpable to Mary. Right, this is not how it's supposed to go. But it's all that they could afford. And they're left to sit there and wonder, how is this possible? Uh, what do we make of this? The coming king, he's supposed to be king. We were told he's going to be king. Right, but we've got nothing. Just two pigeons. So they take him, they dedicate him, and then something happens. This man named Simeon comes up to him. Older man, right, very well respected. And he comes, he takes the child into their arms. And, and he starts to speak like these very prophetic, amazing words. I just think as a parent, it's been amazing to hear. And he says this, he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I've been waiting to see this my whole life. I can die now. Take me now, Lord, now that I've seen this child. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revela- revelation to the Gentiles, right, to the whole world, and glory of your people Israel. All right, just a question. When you were a baby, anybody speak words like that over you? Prophetic words like this? Uh, right, I'm going to guess probably not. All right, we've got two girls. They are beautiful babies. Parents always think so, right? And, pa- and people would come up and say that, which is like the unwritten rule. You've got to let people know whether you think so or not. Wow, you've got a beautiful kid. You know, it's just like, it's an ugly kid. But people would say, hey, just beautiful kids, you know, beautiful baby. But nobody ever said, now that I have seen your child, I can die in peace. Lord, take me now. Right? Never happened. But he does. But then something happens. His voice changes. His tone changes. And he says this. He turns to Mary and says this. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Then he says this, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And then he walks away. And so just for a moment, if you can, place yourself there. And just imagine, for a moment, that that maybe at your child dedication or at the hospital, 
right, some old respected guy, very wise, kind of sage-like guy, comes up, takes your baby into his arms, and begins to speak all these awesome things about these things that are going to be true about your son. Right? Just think about the feeling, the pride. And it just affirms, like, everything you've been hearing. Right? And then imagine for the months, the months leading up to your child's birth, angels and relatives have been saying, this is going to be the future king, your son. And this man is speaking these words of affirmation over him. And you're just thinking, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, this is true. This is actually going to happen. Just imagine like, just the inflating feeling of, of, of a parent. The pride, the excitement, the anticipation of all that your little boy is going to grow up to be. And then imagine his countenance changing. And saying, yeah, this son of yours, he's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. And he's going to cause you a lot of pain. I think you'd feel like you just got hit by a truck. Like maybe you're getting mixed signals here. Like, wait a second. How does this work? All right, the coming king. And Simon says, now he's going to be misunderstood. He's going to be opposed. There's going to be a sword. There's going to be unavoidable pain in your story. Jesus grows up somewhere along the line. We don't know when. Joseph dies. And Mary is left to be a single mom uh, to raise him and his siblings. And Jesus eventually begins his public ministry and he leaves and he's, he's poor and, and he is opposed and there's, there's all, he's being received in all these different ways. But that's not the hard part for Mary. The hard part is that this doesn't look anything like she expected that it would look. Right? It doesn't look anything like the Son of God, the Savior bringing peace. Or at least not peace as she understood it. Right? The Messiah was supposed to purge Israel of sinners, but Jesus is hanging out with them. Right, Jesus is eating with them. Jesus is welcoming them into communities. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Right, the Messiah was supposed to offend all the non-Jewish leaders, but instead he's offending all the religious elite, all the Jewish leaders. Right, all of his issues, his problems are with them. And yet the non-Jewish, the Gentiles, right, the, those on the margins that had always been on the outside, they're coming to Jesus and he's helping them. That's not how it's supposed to be. Right, one of the expectations of the Messiah was that he was supposed to, this, this man, he's supposed to overthrow right, all the Roman rulers, all the Gentile rulers, and get rid of them. Right, and that's, that's the peace that Mary and all of her peers expected. Right, and they thought that, that peace was going to come through Israel by force. Right? And so we all know how the world works. Right? The people with the biggest guns win. Right, you got the biggest guns, the most troops, the heaviest firepower. That's who wins. And that's how they expected peace to come. Right, peace was supposed to be when the battles were all won and done away with. But that's not what Jesus is doing. What is, he, what is he doing? This is not what I expected. It's not supposed to look like this. And we're also told that Mary is left with a splintered family in the process. And so in Mark 3, 21, it says that when his family heard about this, when he heard, they heard about what he was saying, what he was doing and proclaiming, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So they're going to have a good old-fashioned family intervention. All right, this, this Jesus needs to be stopped. Clearly, he's not the Messiah. It's not supposed to look like this. All right, and to add insult to injury, we're told in John 7, 5, that even his brothers didn't believe. And you know that there's pain there, right, both to Jesus and to Mary, as her family is split down the middle. We don't hear about her again. Um, 
Well, we hear about her one or two other times, but we're going to skip those for time's sake. Right, but one of the last times, the last time we hear of Mary in the context of Jesus' ministry is at the very end. Right, and if you remember, Jesus was betrayed. And he is facing death. He's facing torture. Uh, he knows it's coming. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right, and he's crying out to God, and he says, God, if there's any way for this to shake out and go down, let's do that, because I don't want this. Right, but then he prays these amazing words. He says, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. Right, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have spoken. Where do you think he learned that prayer? Right, what woman do you think, growing up, you heard praying that prayer over and over and over, not my will, but yours be done. Right, I am the Lord's servant, may it be, as you have spoken. Right, and we all know what happens next, and Jesus is tortured. And he's nailed to that cross, and we're told that Mary was right there. And most all of the other disciples had run, but Mary was still there, next to her son. And as a dad... I can't imagine what it'd be like just to lose a kid, let alone to watch them suffer, watch them die. Uh, but she's right there, it says, standing near the cross. Right? And she experienced the, the pain. And now she knows what that sword talk was all about. And she experienced the heartache of a mother who just lost her little boy, and I just can't imagine looking at his face and watching him suffer and listening to just the sounds of human agony and seeing on his face and just thinking about the stories and the times growing up of him playing around the house, of them sitting around the dinner table, right, of her teaching him and teaching him how to pray. And then he dies. And we're told something pretty amazing. On the other side of his death, on the other side of the resurrection, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Luke writes this. It says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, this Jesus community, along with the women and along with Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. All right, and now it's not just she who knows. Now her brothers too. And I don't know, just think what it would take for your brothers to be convinced that you are the Son of God. <laughs> I think... A resurrection after your death would probably about do the trick. And now they're here. Right, we're told in one place they, they didn't believe, but in the end, after the death, his death, after his resurrection, we're told that his brothers now are actually a part of this Jesus community. And now they're going to experience and know the peace that this Prince of Peace brings. But it's not going to be a peace because there's no conflict. It's not going to be a peace without pain. It's not going to be a peace without suffering. Right, because we're told that we know, because we know the story, that Pentecost is right around the corner. So long before social media, this thing is about to go viral. Right, they're going to see the kingdom ushered in in ways that they could only have imagined. And they're going to get to be a part of it as God's spirit is just unleashed through this Jesus community on the world. Pentecost is right around the corner. But so is persecution. So is a lot of pain. And a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering. A 
Truth is, not everybody in that room is going to survive it. But almost all of them will suffer. And don't get me wrong, I, I do love Christmas, right? And I do love Silent Night. And I love looking, I'm not anti-nativity scenes, I promise you that. Right, but if I'm really honest, most of my life, most moments, most days, there are entire long seasons of my life where my life is not all as calm, all as bright. Right, the peace that I've experienced in Jesus is not sleep in heavenly peace, like the, the, the kind of peace that the song seems to describe, where there's no pain, there's no suffering, and there's no uncertainty, and there's no conflict, and everything just feels right. right. In fact, there are seasons where instead of all is calm, all is bright, it feels a lot more like all is chaotic, and all seems really dark right now. Right, but this is not the peace um, that Jesus came to bring. And I think Mary's story illustrates that quite powerfully, because she was a woman. She's a woman who literally birthed and raised the Prince of Peace. Right? She had amazing obedience and surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. And yet her life was full of pain and uncertainty and heartache. And yet she prayed, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've spoken. Not my will, but yours be done. Right? And, I, and I say this because I think sometimes we, we come to Jesus and we're so disappointed when the storm inevitably comes. Right? And the waves crash and we find that this is hard. This is not like straight and narrow paved concrete. Right? It's like running the gauntlet and the shots keep on coming. Remember, the peace that, that, God, that God came to come was not peace from the storm. It's peace in the storm. And there's a big difference. Right? It's peace in the doubt. Right? It's peace in the uncertainty. It's peace in the suffering. Peace in the pain. Not my will, but yours be done. It's amazing words. 2,000 years later, people are still praying this prayer. Still changing lives. Still changing the world. And now it's our turn. Not my will, but yours be done. Our turn to follow Jesus into the storm and find the peace that he offers in the midst of the waves. Let's pray. Lord God, I just confess to you that many times in my life when I, when I see the waves and when I, I doubt you and things get hard, and I turn to you and say, why? And how dare you? For all the times, Lord, that I have misunderstood the peace that you come to bring. That it's not a peace without pain. It's not a peace without uncertainty or hardship, but it's peace in those things. The peace that transcends understanding. The peace that Mary and her sons experienced. And I know that in a room this size that we all walk into this Christmas season from a lot of different places and there are some of us that are skipping into Christmas because things are really good right now. Right, but I also know that there are probably many in this room and that is not the case. And the waves seem really big and the pain is very real. 
And for those, Lord, I pray that they would know the peace that you offer in the storm and that you would give all of us the courage to pray those words. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have spoken. Not my will, but yours be done. We pray these things, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.